It's a familiar image. Animal rights activists handing out flyers on college campuses or protesting in the meat aisle at the grocery store. But as technology has evolved, so have the tools these activists use, whether that's hidden cameras, drones, or just a good old smartphone. And now animal rights activists are turning to VR. The idea being that VR footage transports you inside the slaughterhouse. It's nearly impossible to turn away from the scene, from the squealing animals packed wall to wall in small cages. In this episode of Get Wired, reporter Andy Greenberg takes us through the story of the group that's been called the most dangerous animal rights organization out there. He tells us how they managed to infiltrate a pig factory equipped with VR camera rigs and how things didn't go quite as planned. This is Get Wired, and I'm your host, Lauren Good. Andy, tell me about how you found this story. I've always been interested in animal liberation. And sometime in 2019, I actually went out looking for, like, which animal liberation group is the most wired, which is the one that's using technology in interesting ways. I wanted to tell the blow by blow of how do these activists get in? How do they plant hidden cameras? How do they film whole virtual reality experiences inside of these massive factory farms? And then I found direct action everywhere, or DXE, one of the most radical animal liberation activist groups out there. But they're also one of the most technologically savvy. They use hidden cameras and drones to fly over meat farms and ultimately virtual reality. And what do you mean when you say that they're more radical than other groups? First of all, they are not interested in compromising or doing some sort of more organic or um, pasture-raised, cage-free version of meat eating and even dairy. They are abolitionists. They see this as a, a struggle to totally abolish the meat industry as a whole. So, Andy, your story features a law professor who turns into a breaking and entering animal rights activist. Not your typical career path, I think we could say. Who is Wayne Xiong? Wayne Xiong is a kind of unlikely character to be leading this radical guerrilla animal rights organization. He has a background as a law professor and a behavioral economics scholar, studying how people change their minds about things, how social movements cascade through populations. Uh, but in a very academic way. And he thought for a long time, I think, that he would become a legal scholar. And you met Wayne in person. In the fall of 2019, I visited Wayne in Berkeley and I went to his house, which is this big, beautiful house in a really kind of tree-lined, nice neighborhood. But it's one that he shares with like, I don't know, a dozen other activists and many animals as well. Feels much less like a kind of underground guerrilla group hideout than maybe like a large house filled with vegan college students living, you know, in a co-op. Okay, so very Berkeley. Yeah. I remember, you know, Wayne's dog, who he actually rescued from a dog meat farm in, in China, um, was, you know, eyeing me very warily. And then we started talking and I asked him how he got started with all of this. Wayne Sung grew up in this small town in Indiana. He was the son of Taiwanese immigrants. And I think he was a very lonely kid. He describes being mocked and bullied for his accents. 
But he found a dog uh, up for adoption in the classified ads of his newspaper, and he convinced his parents to let him have a dog. And that dog became his best friend. He told me about how, as a child, he would walk through the woods and uh, kind of see all the animals around him and name them as if they were his friends. Like I'd, I'd pretend talk, and I, I gave them all names, and it wasn't even the same animal, probably. I'd say, like, hey, Johnny Squirrel, and it was probably a different squirrel every time I was talking to Johnny Squirrel. Which is honestly... Incredibly sad, but um, but cute, too. Now that paints a, a pretty poignant picture uh, of an animal rights activist as a child. When Wayne turned eight, his parents took him on this trip back to mainland China, where he still had family. And uh, he remembers going to this restaurant in Guangzhou that was a kind of wildlife restaurant. This very controversial southern Chinese cuisine. And the restaurant has all of these animals in cages, like raccoons and snakes, dogs, and even monkeys, all available for diners to just kind of point at. And then that animal is killed and served to them. And so I'm seeing all these animals who I, I, I feel like, wow, I could, this could totally be my friend. And instead, they're trapped in a cage and about to die. And so I just remember feeling kind of stunned and not knowing what to make That it. is incredibly disturbing. For Wayne, this was so horrifying that it became kind of like a formative moment of his childhood. He remembers hearing the screams of those animals in his nightmares for months afterwards. I've had like nightmares about this for 30 years, but of of seeing dogs in cages and then hearing them being beaten to death or seeing them being beaten to death and then slaughtered for someone to eat. Wow, those are pretty graphic nightmares to have even decades later. Yeah, this is the stuff that Wayne has to live with. You know, for some people, this kind of love of animals at a young age might just be a phase. But this really set Wayne down a certain path. What happened next? Well, Wayne ended up becoming a law professor at the University of Chicago. And he told me this one story about while he was living in Chicago, he would repeatedly pass by this one meat company called Chapetti Veal and Lamb. And he would hear the cries of actual sheep and lambs inside this stockyard in Chicago. And he would smell the, you know, the slaughter of this place. And he told me about how one night he uh, just decided he was going to go in and rescue some of these animals. He quickly found that these are actually huge, hundred plus pound animals in many cases. He, he could not even get his arms around one. Uh, and I remember thinking that this is so sad. It's just like really, really sad to see these animals in terror running away from each other and like feces everywhere. And like, you know, I think out in the alleyway, there's literally kind of like blood seeping out one of the doorways. So he walked out empty handed that night, but he kept returning to this Chicago stockyard again and again. And he eventually had this idea that he was going to take photos. He would try to expose the reality of like what the source of veal and lamb is for many people in Chicago. But when he looked at the photos later, he was, he found himself very disappointed. They were these flat, emotionless, dark images that captured none of the sort of feeling of being inside of this facility. And I thought to myself, if only we could capture that moment in a way that was as vivid and visceral and physical and, and, and that demonstrated the movement and the scale and, and, and gave you the freedom to look around and, and really just immerse yourself in that environment the way I am immersed in this environment, looking at this one little lamb in this dreary slaughterhouse pen. 
then maybe people will feel that same sense of urgency I feel to try and help this lamb. So from that point on, he became really determined to use technology to bring this experience viscerally to other people, to put them in the experience that he had had. So was that the origin of Direct Action Everywhere? Well, no, actually Wayne tried and failed to start four other groups before he founded Direct Action Everywhere, but none of them had that kind of hook, like a, the idea that would make them stand out. Until Wayne started to think about this, this group called Improv Everywhere, that's why it's called Direct Action Everywhere, like doing these kind of stunts that are filmed and put on social media. And they did kind of like semi-cheesy things like, you know, reading poems in front of the meat refrigerator in a grocery store and doing die-ins in a Chipotle. That was how they initially started to gain a following. Um, But in the meantime, and actually throughout, they were doing these much more, you know, stealthy, covert, and confrontational nighttime operations. Wayne has been trying to find a better technology, a better way to capture this experience of being inside one of these places. In fact, the experience of the animals themselves inside these places, a way to bring that experience into the minds of normal humans who don't think about this stuff at all. So that's when Wayne started to consider virtual reality. Actually, when Wayne first heard of this idea of using virtual reality for, you know, animal rights activism, he was kind of skeptical. I think he thought of it as like perhaps like a a big kind of uh, cumbersome gimmick. But some of his colleagues convinced him to try it out and they brought a VR rig into a, a California egg farm, which was a supplier of Whole Foods. And when Wayne saw the resulting footage, he just completely changed his mind. And he said, this is something everyone needs to see. So Andy, have you had this VR experience? Have you seen DXE's footage through a headset? You know, one of the reasons that I visited Wayne in person was so that I could uh, watch this VR footage with him. And so when I came to his house, he sat me down on this kind of rotating stool in the middle of his living room um, with his dogs like on the couch in front of me and kind of eyeing me warily as I put this weird headset on. And uh, the next thing I know, I am in Operation Death Star. All right. What is Operation Death Star? Operation Death Star is kind of the, I would say maybe like the magnum opus of DXE. It's the VR experience, the VR footage that DXE captured inside of Circle 4 Farms, which is one of, if not the biggest pig farm in America. This complex, Circle 4, is owned by Smithfield Foods, which is one of the world's biggest producers of pork. It's just a huge complex of barns in the middle of the Utah desert uh, with also all of these lagoons, just these massive bodies of water that are used as these collection pools for, for pig feces and blood and everything else that is just uh, the kind of runoff of these pretty filthy operations. So it seems obvious why DXE would target this facility, because it's one of the biggest in the country, as you mentioned. But is there any other reason why these activists chose Circle 4 in particular? Direct Action Everywhere is is particularly skeptical of any kind of claims about the the humaneness of the operations of these massive factory farms. Uh, 
for direct action everywhere. They call this place the Death Star because it is just the kind of epicenter, as they see it, of the slaughter of pigs, which I've read reports that this one complex sends more than a million pigs to slaughter every year. In 2007, Circle 4 Farms had pledged publicly to phase out gestation crates, these cages that really constrain pigs to exactly the dimensions of their body. They can't really move or even turn around. And Wayne didn't believe that they were actually going to stop using gestation crates as they had promised to do. And he wanted to see for himself. He wanted to go in and hold them accountable. So that's what they did. They brought this massive VR rig into one of the country's biggest pig farms, hauled it you know, through multiple barns, filmed and you know, captured this really horrific experience. So when I sat down in Wayne's living room, almost two years later, he put this Oculus headset on me so that I could see all of that for myself. What was it like seeing this in VR? Well, you know, VR works. You know, one minute I am in this kind of messy Berkeley house and the next I'm in the Utah desert and Wayne is kind of talking to a group of direct action everywhere activists who are now about to go into circle four and briefing them on this operation they're about to do. Is ready to go? Then the next shot is you are essentially looking inside a dumpster full of dead piglets with a mother sow just dumped face first on top of them. They literally just took a mother pig, threw in here head first with a pile of probably 100 dead babies. It's immediately horrifying. I mean, it is just like you're just, you know, thrown into the deep ends of the meat industry horror pool. And when we just got here, we could still hear the blood dripping from our bodies. And you can't help but feel disgusted and, and horrified. But then the next moment, you see Wayne, and he says, All right, folks, we're about to head into Circle 4. This is the heart of evil. And you walk with Wayne into uh, Circle 4, and he pushes open this door, and you are inside of this pig facility. And then you see and hear thousands and thousands of squealing pigs, um, all sounding like they're in distress. This facility is massive. Even just this one barn, you can see down here, aisle after aisle after aisle of mother pigs. There are hundreds, hundreds of mother pigs and even just this one barn. But there's 75,000 mothers just like this, 75,000 stalls just like hers at this site. That scene is far more distressing and effective. And you do feel the power of VR because I could look in any direction and just see endless rows of these miserable animals stretching out into the darkness farther than you could see. It's like there's no direction really that you can look and uh, to kind of look away. You kind of physically cannot escape it. Like that is in some ways the goal of what Direct Action Everywhere is doing with VR. But the sound was a really powerful part of the experience as well, because there is just this kind of surround sound effect of animals squealing in distress all around you in this cacophony. And that was disturbing in a way that I don't believe any video or photo I've ever seen has been. What was the most surprising thing about 
how this VR experience affected you. You know, as a reporter, you tell your experiences, and I keep having to remind myself that I did not actually go into Circle Four. Like, I, I find that I actually think that I was there all the time in my recollection of this. But what I was most struck by was the fact that I, I actually felt afraid. I felt like a kind of coldness on my neck. Andy, in hearing you describe all of this, I'm struck by how professional the whole operation seems to be. I mean, just knowing that a VR camera rig is a little bit more complicated, right, than a hidden buttonhole camera. And just to be able to get in there and get away without being caught is pretty impressive. I've been just incredibly impressed, honestly, with the kind of rigor of direct action everywhere's preparation for these things. This is a group that has night vision goggles. They have walkie-talkies. They're equipped with Tyvek suits to, to avoid being a biohazard to the animals when they go into the places. The degree to which they've kind of developed a, like an institutional practice is almost like comparable to you know, law enforcement or intelligence agency, but in a very grassroots sort of way. So how are they capturing all of this in the first place? What's their equipment like? Trespassing into these factory farms in the middle of the night and avoiding security and doing it stealthily is, is difficult enough. Now imagine trying to do it with this really heavy and quite fragile VR rig that has you know six sensors with these Japanese Antonia lenses that are usually used in astronomy. This is all custom developed. This all sounds pretty intense, Andy. Are there other groups that are going to this extreme to capture things in VR? Direct Action Everywhere is not the only group doing VR. In fact, the whole um, idea was really invented by this other group called Animal Equality that is based in Spain. And the difference is that Animal Equality and its founder, Jose Valle, he does not want to go to prison. <laughs> and, and, he, and he won't, in fact, risk doing these things in the United States. There are a lot of things that, that Direct Action Everywhere does that are really radical and sort of bleeding edge. But the, maybe the thing that is most unique about them is that they are not trying to get away with what they're doing. They want to be caught. They want to be charged. They want to go to trial, in fact. And Wayne wants to go to trial because he sees that as a moment to bring attention to this. So what happens after this Operation Death Star? When Direct Action Everywhere released this footage, they didn't hide the identities of the people involved. You can see Wayne speaking on camera. Uh, this is a fully open rescue, as they say. They were almost asking to be criminally charged. Wayne was hit with felony charges, including burglary and theft of livestock, not just for the Smithfield operation, but also for two other cases. And he faced in total as much as 60 years in prison. As these charges started to pile up, uh, some Direct Action Everywhere members took plea deals and paid hundreds of dollars in restitution, um, agreed to gag orders. But Wayne refused all deals. And with Operation Death Star, he actually was hoping that he would be able to force each of the 12 members of this jury to put on Oculus headsets and themselves experience being inside of a massive pig farm. 
um, maybe even the judge too. Oh, wow. The judge would, would even wear it in this case. Yeah. And that would be a kind of watershed moment. This is double pronged attack thing where he's like trying to both um, get media attention to this, but then also trying to set a precedent that what they call open rescue, these operations where they go in and take out animals, that that is actually legal. If he could win that kind of like Hill Mary arguments, like that would change animal liberation activism, I think, for forever. What happened after that? After the article published, things did change for Wayne. And I'm not sure if it was because of the media attention or maybe just because Smithfield Foods decided to change its strategy. But Wayne started to get much more lenient offers from prosecutors. He's no longer facing prison time, uh, or at least not very long prison time. It seems very likely that his charges will be reduced, that he will walk away without prison time, um, that he won't go to trial and that he certainly won't spend years in prison. Wait, so back up a little bit. Smithfield Foods, you said, changed their strategy. What happened there? Well, their response really began the day after DXE published its VR footage. They put out a statement that said they had commissioned a third-party audit that resulted in no findings of animal mistreatment. Instead, they um, accused DXE of actually fabricating parts of the VR footage and they accused DXE of endangering the animals with, you know, um, biocontamination. When I showed this statement to Wayne, he showed me actually other angles of the VR footage that they captured in that operation that make it pretty clear that the things they're being accused of fabricating were not fabricated. Smithfield Foods would later actually put out its own 360 virtual tour video on YouTube that similarly kind of shows a walk through its barns, but with absolutely different conditions, you know, happy looking pigs and this kind of breezy voiceover. Hi, got a minute or two? Great, because I've got a couple of things you might want to know about how sows are cared for and housed at Smithfield Foods. Plenty of rest, lots of food and water, and no scuffles with other pigs, all to protect your pregnancy and unborn. So this kind of reminds me of when someone draws like a bunch of concentric circles on a whiteboard and makes a bunch of bullet points, but they're not really addressing the assignment they were supposed to do. I'm not quite sure what's going on here. Yeah. Smithfield Foods even invited Wired to come tour one of its pig farms, which, you know, I have to say we declined because we didn't think that actually flying across the country to see a pig farm on a kind of guided tour would offer a meaningful representation of the conditions of these animals. You know, in some ways, this is a win for Wayne. Wayne has won this battle. He made his VR piece. He got a big media splash. He's going to stay out of prison, it seems like, but he hasn't won the war. He didn't get his big standoff. He didn't go to trial. He didn't get to set his legal precedence. He hasn't in any way slowed down or stopped the operations of a company like Smithfield Foods. When you talk about this legal precedence, I mean, that's one thing. But when you talk about winning hearts and minds, VR doesn't really seem like on a larger scale all that effective, right? Not everybody has VR headsets. They're not super accessible technology. And I wonder if maybe just publishing something on YouTube where millions of people could watch it would actually be more effective. 
Yeah, you're right. Like that, you cannot make millions of people see something in VR. I think that there, you know, there probably just aren't enough VR headsets out there for something to go viral like in VR the way that it does on YouTube. But what you can do, and what I think Wayne really is trying to accomplish, is to take someone who just kind of casually believes in animal rights, and if you can persuade them to put this headset on, then you can, you know, I would almost say radicalize them. You can make them a true believer, like a zealot for the cause, the way that DXE themselves are. Tell me a little bit more about the future of activists using this kind of technology, like VR. What are some other ways this could be used? Um, You know, right now, VR, like the typical VR you experience with an Oculus headset is vision and sound and, you know, you can move your heads. I think there's a future of VR where you will move your body through simulated worlds and simulated experiences where maybe there will be smell and taste too. Wayne imagines a future where he can bring people into VR experiences where they're not just kind of um, being guided around a, a factory farm and able to turn their head and look, but actually moving themselves. Like you can choose where to walk among all of these thousands of pigs in cages. You can interact with the environment around you. Those are the experiences he wants to bring people into. And imagine as the technology improves, I think that that could be really powerful. And I I guess I should also mention that Wayne is running for mayor of Berkeley. And um, in fact, is kind of staying out of trouble in the meantime. He's not doing any of these, as far as I know, uh, nighttime break-ins that currently he's leaving that to all of his kind of disciples at DXE instead. Wow. And I mean, do you think that his activism is going to be a positive for him during his campaign? I don't, you know, I can see Wayne being like painted as an animal rights terrorist by his political opponents. And maybe that will work and that he could have a lot of baggage from that. But he also, you know, he's somebody who is a very principled person and seems capable of building a following and think that that might work for him in politics, too. I don't know. I don't live in Berkeley, so I don't Right. Also, it's Berkeley. Well, he may have seen something in the future when he started using VR, because maybe we'll all be participating in elections in VR in the near future. It's very COVID-friendly. It's true. Andy, thank you so much for having this conversation with me for Get Wired. Well, thank you for telling this story. It's been a pleasure to talk about it. Stay tuned for next week's episode for part two with Andy Greenberg. He'll take us deep inside another DXE operation, one that uncovers even more disturbing factory farm conditions. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter, at Lauren Good. This episode is reported by Andy Greenberg. You can find Andy on Twitter, at A underscore Greenberg. Special thanks to Wayne Shung, co-founder and activist at Direct Action Everywhere, who joined us on this week's episode. This episode was produced by senior producer Liz Mack, with additional production help from our assistant producers Alex Jerome and Ben Montoya, who also scored this episode. Megan Greenwell, the editor of Wired.com, is our story editor. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman. Scott Rosenfield is our site director. Wired's editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson, and Julie Shen oversees our audio initiatives. Mixing and sound design was done by Hannes Brown. Theme music is by Allison Leighton-Brown. 
You can find us on wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. And there's more info in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you and subscribe to the show on your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.